Hey everybody, I'm so excited to uh, introduce to you our speaker this weekend. I'm not speaking this weekend, as you can see, I'm resting my voice, so you can be praying for that. Uh, but I'm really excited about who the Lord lined up to speak this weekend about one of my favorite topics. This is so important to me, and it's so important to our church. It's a huge part of who we are and why we do what we do and how we do what we do. So as you hear God's heart for Israel, I want your heart, I pray, to explode. So would you welcome one of my dearest friends and one of the best on this topic of God's heart for Israel. Welcome to the stage, my friend, Nick Lesmeister. <laughs> right. Hey, hey, everybody. Greetings from Texas, as one of my favorite fellow Texans said. All right, all right, all right. Y'all ready to uh, dive into something fun and special and awesome and close to the heart of God? Yeah, all right, great. Me too. Um, my name's Nick. As Pastor Preston said, we've known each other for about five years now. And he has, and his family actually, has played really a pivotal role in my path and walking with the Lord. And that path has now led me to being where I'm at now, which is at Gateway Church in Southlake in Texas with Pastor Robert and uh, stewarding a very special part of our church that really predates the founding of our church. And it was something that was in Pastor Robert's heart, something that was in the heart of his pastor, Pastor Olin Griffin, who's still with us, thank God. And that is this priority to the Jewish people, this priority of love for and, um, and love to the Jewish people. So I lead an initiative there called the Gateway Center for Israel. And our, our job is essentially to just communicate what this book says about the Jewish people to the church. So it's a joy for me to do that with you this morning, and I just want to honor your pastor and thank him for all that he's done to be a, uh, really a forerunner and a, and a loud voice on this message amongst the church at large, but then also thank him for everything he's done for me and that you've done for me. Uh, your church has been so generous, and years ago, you, you didn't even know this, but through your generosity, you all helped to pay for me to go a, through a one-week intensive that really changed my life and led me to being where I am today. So I know Pastor Phil mentioned this just a few minutes ago, but connection is so important. Relationships are so important, and I'm so thankful that your church has such a great value for that because really the meaning of life is forming and maintaining and deepening committed relationships of love with other people. It really is. The older I get, I just rounded 40, the more I realize it's all about relationships. That's it, period. And uh, I just thinking about that, even being here, this, the, the, the ways that God's used different people in my life at different phases in ways I would have never expected. So it's an honor for me to be here with you guys. I love your pastor. Your pastor's a quote machine. And um, he, I, every time I'm in a meeting with him, it's like I'm just like hammering out notes. It's amazing, you know, how he can take complex things and make them so simple. And God's just gifted him with such a unique way of communicating. And he said something late, kind of in a message at the end of this last year in 2020 that you will never understand who you are until you first understand who God is. And that's true. We're made in his image, right? So we can't really 
understand who we are until we understand him as being ones who've been created like him. And um, I just want to kind of go a little bit deeper on a part of who God is with you today. And we know that God wants an intimate relationship with every person. He wants an intimate relationship with you, with your family, with people who are not inside the walls of this church right now, everybody. God, that's his heart, right? He wants an intimate relationship, not just a casual friendship, but a real, truly loving, intimate relationship with every person. And then out of that, he wants to bring each one of us into his family, where he can sustain and nurture his love for us through relationship with one another and through relationship with him. And that's how we discover the fullness of who we are. It's through being a part of the family of God. And I think that's something that gets talked about a lot these days. You want to belong to a family. But have we ever stopped to actually ask, what does it mean to be a part of the family of God? Who is the family of God? What does it look like? And so I want to talk this morning a little bit about that. And in order to understand God and to understand his family, we need to know that there's two things really clear in the Bible about God. There's a lot, but these are two. He makes promises and he keeps promises. Bottom line, this book is full of promises made and promises kept. And, and there's a lot of promises still in here that haven't yet been fulfilled. And we're waiting in anticipation for those to be kept because we know he's kept thousands of promises. He's going to keep the remaining promises that are yet to be kept. And so uh, he made these promises in this case. This is a thin line Bible. And I just want to kind of give you an illustration that roughly this much of the Bible, this part right here, were promises made to a very specific group of people. That was the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for most of us in here, like me, you might be Gentile, not Jewish, from the nations, the ethnos. And we kind of got added in on this little portion right here. There's about 10% that's about us. Yeah, you know? We weren't, we weren't first, but baby, we made it. And, but... We have to understand what all this says if we want to understand who God is and understand being a part of his family. So God's a family man, and he made promises to a specific family. And I just want to uh, remind you of another family man um, that I think you guys will maybe remember. So check out the screens. It's a rare condition day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page and love and tradition of the grand design some people say it's even harder to find well then there must be some magic clue inside these gentle walls cause all I see is a tower of dreams real love bursting out of every scene Smother the blues with tenderness. There's room for you, room for me, for gentle hearts and opportunity. It's the bigger love of the family. All 
All right, how many of y'all grew up watching that show? Show of hands. Man, that's a lot. Amazing. Steve Urkel, right? You know, I mean, like, he was the guy. Uh, I love what that, what that song says, the intro to that song. There's room for you and there's room for me. It's the bigger love of the family. And so I'm titling today's message, Family Matters, Your Role or Your Participation in Israel's Story. So this book, which is a Bible, uh, is a story, right? I mean, it really is. It's just like, that's why we call it a book. It's the number one selling book in all time. And it tells the story of God's interaction with humanity. But it tells a specific story, you see, up until about, let's just look here, okay? I'm going to flip through these pages. This much, right here, of this story has to do with one specific family, the Jewish family the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, actually, this portion here has a lot to do with them as well, but those of us who are not Jewish, myself included, we got added to this part right around here. So what is that? About 90% of this book is specifically written to a certain group of people about a certain group of people. And so I want to show you today that family matters to God. You're a part of God's family, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And then I want to help you maybe ask the question, how can you participate? in this grand narrative. So I, I like to boil down my messages into one sentence. So if you want to remember this, it's this. God has a universal plan to use particular people in a family partnership to redeem the world. Will you participate? So every good story, uh, oftentimes, you know, if you've grown up and you've gone to plays, plays have three acts, right? It's a three-act play. And so I'm going to, instead of giving you three points, we're going to look at this in the idea of a story, and we're going to have act one, act two, and act three. And so the first act of this story, this great story that is our Bible, our book, that we live our lives by, uh, is called the plan. God has a universal plan. And I want to just spend a little bit of time explaining this because mostly, and I'm saying this as a Western Gentile person, okay, we kind of misunderstand the framework of this book because there's been this parting of the ways between the Gentile community and the Jewish community. And the Gentile community went in the direction of what it would be called a Greek worldview. And the Jewish community to this day maintains a worldview that is rooted in a Hebraic worldview. And I want to bring out to you how this is all a part of God's plan because God made this distinction. He made the distinction of Jew and Gentile. That's, that's the number one distinction in this book. There's male and female in this book, but the biggest distinction that's made in this book is Israel and the nations or Jews and Gentiles. And so what is the plan? Well, every good story starts in the beginning, right? Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, like the little scorpions you guys have out here. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And look at this, fill the earth and govern it. 
The Good News Translation says, have many children so that your descendants will live all over the earth. So here we go. God creates humans and he gives the first command he says is what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now we might look at that and just think, well, of course, God, God wants there to be lots of people. But I, I want to actually pose a different question. I think there was some intentionality here that now here we are thousands of years later and we, we might have been missing or we might be fuzzy on some of this intentionality. So we know the plan from the beginning is that God wants to have an intimate relationship with people. And unfortunately, this doesn't last a whole long time because all of a sudden here we are two chapters later, we're in Genesis 3 and we see the fall of mankind. We see Eve give in to temptation from the serpent and she leads Adam into that temptation and all of a sudden there's a barrier put between God and his creation. But God says something that's very interesting in Genesis 3.15, and I'm reading this from the message. He says, I'm declaring war between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will wound your head, and you will wound his heel. So it's like as soon as sin comes into the earth, God makes a declaration. He said, this isn't over. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get back to my original plan, which is I want every person on earth to be in a relationship with me and under the knowledge of God. So this is his plan, to redeem humanity from sin and restore us to relationship with God. He wants people back. He's jealous. I think Pastor Preston talked about this last weekend. He is a God that has jealous love. So as we keep going through Genesis, we see in Genesis 6 that man had begun to fill the earth, but there were wicked to the core, the Bible says. And it got to the point where God literally says he regrets making man on earth and his heart was deeply pained. So what happens? He has to flood the entire earth. He looks down and says, this is not good. I need to start over. So he chooses one guy named Noah and his family. They build a big boat. They get inside of it. He floods the earth for 150 days. And then when it's over, he starts over with Noah's family. And he makes a covenant with Noah. And he says, I will never again destroy all living things. So God says, okay, I had to start over, but I'm not going to do that again. That's something I'm, I'm, I'm covenanting to myself. It's an unconditional promise. I'm never going to do that again. But look what it says in Genesis 9-1, after the flood's over. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It's like this whiteboard, right? God wipes the whole thing clean and says, okay, let's go back to this point. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I'm, I am intentional about this. Please fill the earth. Now just a couple chapters later, we're in Genesis 11. This is the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. As men traveled in the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar or Babylonia and made their home there. They said to one another, come, let us make blocks and burn them until they're hard. They used blocks for stone and tar to hold them together. Then they said, come, let us build a city for ourselves with a tower that touches the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves or else we may be sent everywhere or scattered all over the earth. I never really saw what is going on right here. They were building a city, not because they were trying to be defiant and say, oh God, we can be like you. If we can all get together, we can actually become so powerful that we can be like you. They were afraid of being scattered all over the earth. Why? 
Well, number one, they were in defiance of God because God made a commandment to people to, to basically live all over the earth, right? It's reflecting something that's in the heart of God and it's a core part that I want to help us understand today. And so I'm gonna use this whiteboard from time to time, but this is what it is. God is interested in diversity. It's clear from creation. God wants diversity. What was Babel? Babel was uniformity. Babel was strict uniformity. It was a bunch of people getting together, building a tower so high that people would not be able to get out because they wanted to enforce a top-down, uniform, uh, strict code of adherence to what it meant to be a part of that community. And you look at the Hebrew on this, and it's very clear there was a lot of corruption happening. This was, in a sense, like radical communism, its first form of it. And it was a complete antithesis of what God wanted, which was diversity. And in some ways, this word, and I'm going to share, uh, teach about this in here in a minute. I've got to think while I write, though. Otherwise, y'all are going to see my bad spelling. Particularity. Univer- d- diversity equals particularity. Particularity e- equals diversity. I want to put that up there because I'm going to reference these words a lot. What is the point? God wanted to have a universal relationship with all people, but he does that by having a particular relationship with specific people. And he wanted people to, coha- to inhabit the earth. He wanted people to live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and he wanted them to live in you know, Canada. And guess what? To live here, it looks different than to live there. It looks different to live in a desert than it does to live in a rainforest. This is a part of God's creative plan. He wants diversity because it's a reflection of who he is. We were made in his image, and so each one of us has to rightly assess the meanness of me and the you-ness of you in order to understand the us-ness of us so that I can know what I fully am as a person. I'm unique. You're unique. This is what was in God's heart, and it was the found- this is a foundation that we have to rediscover. So look what it says in Genesis 11:8. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. So that's how God dealt with it. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> it ain't going down like this. I want people to worship me in every tribe, language, and tongue. And I want differentiated unity on the earth. And it's amazing to me how we live in a time where this spirit of Babel is being resurrected at an almost violent level. <laughs> I mean, you read this story and it's like, wow, they built structure to enforce a code of uniformity from the top down. That sounds really familiar. It just isn't a high tower anymore. Now it's media, it's social values, it's all these other little things. It's, there's something in defiance of God in the heart of mankind and its fallen nature that says diversity is bad, uniformity is good, and it's a defiance of the Lord. So the Bible is... is like I said, it's, it's a Hebraic worldview, okay? And that's different. Why? Because a Hebraic worldview is a particular worldview. That's the point. And we've been influenced by the writings of a guy named Plato and Aristotle. And they, you see, came to a different conclusion. They said things get truer as they become universally accepted. As when you drive by a tree, the reason that tree is a tree is because Everybody thinks it's a tree. That's platonic universalism. 
the highest form of truth is when it's seen and accepted as the highest form of truth by the most number of people. Well, guess what? That's not how God works. God is not democratic. He's not a Democrat or a Republican, but he is not a Democrat. He's not democratic. He makes choices that it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. He said, this is my choice to make. I'm the all-knowing one, right? This is what he got into with Job. Job, were you there when I created the foundations of the earth? And Job realized, oh, maybe I don't know everything. Hmm, maybe God had a reason and maybe I don't know what that reason is. He is a particular God. And he is particular about love for particular people. Love in its nature has to be particular. Have you ever thought about this? I mean, we sing songs in the church and, and we have a mandate to love everyone. Absolutely that's true. But I can't love everyone if I can't love the person in front of me. It's impossible. I have to make a choice when I, I've been married for 15 years and I had to make a choice. I love my mom. But when I got married, I had to choose to reserve a particular level of love, the deepest uh, seat of love in my heart for my wife. And if push came to shove, I'm choosing my wife over my mom. Sorry, mom, if you're watching. <laughs> she knows that, though. Because the highest expression of love, the deepest expression of love, is when it is expressed in its most particular, specific form to a specific person. That's why marriage is so stinking hard, y'all. You, you're you're going to go your whole life and reserve a part of yourself for one person only, rejecting all others, when everything else in the world is telling us, no, it's okay. It's okay. Just have a little, you know, enjoy a little bit of this. Enjoy a little bit of that. And, you know, things get boring. Shake it up a little bit. It might seem boring, but it's the deepest and most pure expression of love. And God is not generally loving. God isn't going to deal in the future with injustice generally. He's not going to just get everyone in a room and say, okay, I have a lot of people here, defendants, and uh, people who are making accusations about injustice on the earth while I was away. And I'm just going to sentence all of y'all to 100 years in prison. (laughs) No, here's what he's going to do. He's going to call every single person by name, and he's going to have you stand in front of that person And he's going to walk them down. And he's going to say to that person, you wronged them. Now you are going to pay for that injustice. I don't know about you. It doesn't make me happy in some sadistic way to see someone that's done uh, something unjust to me to be punished, but it does deepen my identity and love for the Father to know that he's going to deal with every single injustice that's been done unfairly to me. And he's going to do the same thing for you. That's how jealous he is and particular he is about your love, uh, his love for you. So I I use this as an example, this whole idea of particularity, okay? You guys are going to relate to this because you live in a place that actually has mountains. I feel bad for all these people moving from California to Texas because, I mean, I don't, did they ever come to Texas and see there's really nothing there? I mean, it's like, there's no ocean. There's no mountains. It's just hot. We have restaurants, I guess. <laughs> so this is a mountain. Now, this represents for us, let's just say, our life, okay? And our job, here we are, you and me, in our thinner states, 
And our job is to get up this mountain, right? This is what God called us up here. Whatever it is for you, okay? And here's what's cool is God is sitting up here in this poorly drawn helicopter, okay? And he's guiding us. He's saying, hey, I have a plan for you and I want to get you up here to where I've called you and you got to just listen to the sound of my voice and pay attention to my instruction. Well, guess what? There are many paths that I can take to get up this mountain. You guys know that from being around here. If you, you know, there's trails, but you know, we always have a couple people that are like, oh, I'm going to go the other way, right? There is numerous particular paths. And so it's like, I can start in this direction. God knows like the best path, but in the reality is he's given me the freedom to choose. And so I have to listen to his voice. And if he says, go this way, and then I get here and, oh, there's a creek. I didn't expect that. I got to go this way. And then I go this way. And then I go this way. And then I go this way. Oh, and then I have to go over here. And then I go, oh no, I'm going backwards now. This is the path of particularity okay? And you over here have a different path where you're going. See, you and I, our paths are different, but we're both being guided by the same person to the same goal. (laughs) And that's something I want to pull out of this message. So God has a universal plan to redeem the world. That's what he wants, to use particular people in a family partnership. So let's talk about this. Okay, so Babel happens. Remember, I, I kind of used this example with the flood, like God took all of his plans and wiped them off the whiteboard and said, okay, I'm going to start over, but I'm never going to flood the earth again. So Babel happens. He scatters everybody, right? And uh, I think about this clip from our dear friend, George W. Bush, you know, um, former governor of Texas, two-term president, and... Uh, you know, he, he had a, the unique ability to put his foot in his mouth. And if you've ever went on YouTube and searched George W. Bush gaffes, like if you need a laugh, if you're like feeling sad, just go watch it, okay? I, I love him. I really do. But man, he could say some humdinger things. And uh, one time he was given a press conference in Tennessee, and he, um, I don't know what he was talking about, but he said, there's, a, there's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas too, but fool me once, shame on... Uh, Shame on you. Um, you. You fool me, I can't get fooled again. Now, we all know that phrase, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I feel like this is kind of where God is in Genesis 12, right? It's like, hey, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I ain't getting fooled again, okay? So what does he do? He introduces a new person to the scene, and his name was Abram. In Jewish tradition, it's believed that God basically picked Abram via lottery, that he just said, eeny, meeny, miny, that guy. I'll try that. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because what does then God do? He starts testing him over and over again. And he's like, okay, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to do something for me particular, but I want to make sure I got the right guy. And so in Genesis 12, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, Go to the land that I'll show you, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make, the, make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All families on the earth will be blessed through you. So here's God's plan. He wants to use a particular guy and establish a particular family that he can work in and build up a reputation to reach every single other person on earth because the universal path wasn't working. 
He saw what was in man's hearts and he said, I need to do something unique and specific and particular with, a, with one group of people. And it says, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. That word in Hebrew actually is to treat lightly, to treat you lightly. I will curse people who treat you lightly. And if you think about it, if Abraham, in a sense, becomes God's first real family son, this is why it's important for us as Christians, for our churches, to do what this verse says and bless the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and not to treat them lightly. And people who have treated the Jewish people lightly, it has not gone well for them. Nations that have treated the Jewish people lightly, it has not gone well for them. So in Genesis 17, God renames Abram Abraham, which means the father of a multitude of nations. And in Genesis 21, his son Isaac is born when he's 100 years old. 100. Why did God make Abraham wait until he was 100, 100 to have a son? I think because God looked down over the earth and he saw this tribal identity, this particular identity, and said, okay, Abram, here's the deal. I'm going to create a particular family tribal identity, but I'm calling you to be a father of the nation, so you, you can't maintain this exclusivity and prejudice against other families. I want you to have my heart as a father. And I'm going to make you wait 100 years to become a father so that you, when you become a dad, it's like the biggest, most tastiest, sweetest gift you've ever got. So he creates this particular family, God does, through Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. And, and then all of a sudden you start to see God is reaffirming this by using all this family language. In Exodus 4, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. In Deuteronomy 1, 31, he says, you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. Psalm 103, the Lord is like a father to his children. Jesus refers to God as the father 107 times. You know, I have to say this is unique. Of the three major monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the one that has the shared foundation, Judaism and Christianity, we're the only one of those three that see God as a father. It, it, it just represents something unique about him. He wants a family. He wants you to be a part of it, and he wants to show you who he is as a father. So again, the point was reaching the universal, reaching all people through a particular group of people. And you see this played out, okay? You've got Exodus 12. God says that I'm gonna use you to bless all families of the earth. In, uh, sorry, in Genesis 12, the whole story of the Exodus, when God delivers the Jewish people out of the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, what is said over and over? God is reminding Pharaoh, I'm about to do this so that all the nations will see how powerful I am. You just see, as God's working through this particular group of people, you see his heart. He wants everybody. When David goes to kill Goliath, what does he do? He goes down and he confronts Goliath and he said, I'm going to kill you today, cut off your head, and then everyone will know that there's a God in Israel. When Joshua takes the people into the promised land, he says the same thing when they're crossing the Jordan, they're about to go approach Jericho. He says, all people of the earth will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And we know that from this particular people comes the Savior and the Messiah of the world, Jesus. You know, he couldn't have come into the world unless he came through a family. He had to. 
he had to be born in a family. And the family he was born in was this covenantal group of people, the Jewish people. And by God working through one family, it shows that he never is going to cut people out of his plans. God could have easily just snapped his finger, right? I mean, he could do it right now. He could snap his finger and just save everybody. But he has connected himself to working through people. And that includes you. God needs you because you are the only you that God has. You ever thought about that? It sounds trivial, but it's not. You are the only you that is available to God. There is no one else like you. There's no one else out there that works in the job that you work in, that raises the children that you raise, that is married to the person you're married to. You're the only one. He needs you because you're the only you that you have, and he needs you to be the fullest, exa- the fullest expression of who you really are, who he made you to be. <laughs> and a lot of times that identity comes through being a part of the family. So the last point, the last act, is the partnership. What is God's plan in all this? He wants to reach all people, right? Well, we know just by being here today that we're not a part of God's original family, the Jewish family. And so at some point, he made it available for us Gentiles to come be a part of the family. But I want to just step back and, you know, we, okay, we know that that happened through Jesus, right? Jesus is our personal mediator between God and us. He is our personal savior. He's our personal friend. But sometimes people miss the stated purpose that Jesus had in coming on earth. And I just want to, I'm in a, in this next section, I'm just going to show you a few scriptures. And I think some things are going to jump off the page that maybe have never jumped off the page for you before. I know this has happened with me. Matthew 1, 21. Mary will give, a, give birth to a son and you shall call his name Yeshua or Jesus for he will save who? His people from their sins. Now, I think by nature, most of us read over that and we think his people, the, the people people. Who are his people? It's his family, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How do we know that? Jesus is ministering to a Gentile woman in Sidon, Phoenician woman. And it says in Matthew 15, 24, he says to the Gentile woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. Okay, so Jesus made a stated purpose. Look, this is why I was sent, to help the lost family. I gotta get the family back on track because they've got a mission. Their mission is to reach the world. And so I can't, we can't do that without them. We can't just sidestep them. We need them. We need them to live in the fullness of their calling so that they can fulfill what God called them to do. And Jesus would see that, man, this family is like, they are, wow, they're really wandering around here. And he said, I've come, you're lost. I've come for the lost sheep to bring them back into the pasture to shepherd them to the right place, to their rightful calling, to be a blessing to the nations, to all families of the earth. And right before he's crucified in Matthew 23, 
This is what Jesus says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's overlooking the city as he's coming down the Mount of Olives. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's about to go and be crucified. We know he's raised from the dead. But we know he says, I'm coming again. And when I come, it's going to be universal. Revelation 1-7 says, everyone will see him. All people. It's going to be a universal coming. There's not going to be any question about it. He's going to come on a cloud <laughs> with fire in his eyes. It's not going to be mistaken. It's like, oh, who, who is that? They're going to know who that is. But what's he saying to the city of Jerusalem? The Jewish, the heart of the Jewish people is Jerusalem. And he's saying, you're not going to see me again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai in Hebrew. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is, even to this day, it's a well-known phrase in Hebrew, in, in the Jewish religion. That's a phrase of invitation. He's saying, I'm not going to come back to you until I'm invited. I want you to cry out for me. I need you to have a desire to see me. And then I will open the heavens and come back. And so we can do everything that we want to, you know, as Gentiles. And yes, Matthew 24 says, and this gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. That's not the only requirement to see Jesus return. This has to be a core part of our family value as non-Jews who have put our faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the King of Israel, the head of the church. We have to say, okay, we want to preach and, t and reach the world with the good news, but we also have to do this. Because if we don't go, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first, then we're going to miss God's original family, which really means we're going to treat as lightly something that matters to God. He's not going to sidestep his family. No matter how big the Gentile church gets, that's what's so amazing about God, you guys. He is so committed to the promises he made. He will say, I can wait. I can wait. I'm not going. I'm not coming back until they're ready for me. And we see through the ministry of Paul that God enlists the Gentiles to help with this. Ephesians 3, 2. I assume that you have heard of the work God in his grace has given me to do for your benefit. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Ephesians who are Gentiles. And that it was by a revelation that this secret plan was made known to me. A secret plan. I've already written about it briefly and if you read what I've written, you'll grasp how I understand this secret plan concerning the Messiah. What is the secret plan? In past generations, it was not made known to mankind as the Spirit is now revealing it to his emissaries and prophets. Here's the secret plan. That in union with the Messiah Jesus and through his good news, the Gentiles were to be joint heirs, a joint body, and joint sharers with the Jews in what God had promised. Note this language, because this doesn't, the church has missed this. <laughs> We've missed it, you guys. Because we don't understand particularity. We are called to be 
joint heirs, a joint body. You can't be joint by yourself. It's a partnership. It's a family partnership. And you can't be in a partnership without a partner. I've never met someone in business that says, yeah, I run a partnership. Oh, who's your partner? Oh, me. <laughs> well, you should see a psychologist. <laughs> if there's two of you talking at the same time, you might need to see someone. Paul says joint heirs, joint body, joint shares. This is what's happened. As, as, as the Gentile church grew, it became severed from its Jewish family. The believers in Jesus and the non-Jewish, non-believers in Jesus, the, the Jewish non-believers in Jesus. And we, we started to get this idea that, oh, God's doing this new thing. And we don't really need them anymore. Well, that's not what Paul was saying. So this is the mystery he's saying. And it's being revealed in his time. He was overwhelmed by this. Why? Because he knew at some point God was reaching everybody. They were waiting for it. All the prophets declared that. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, it says in Isaiah 49. They knew this. They were just waiting to know when. And they knew that the Messiah would be the one that would do that. So when Jesus came and resurrected from the dead, it was like, whoa, it's time. It's time for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, well, just a minute. You've got some work to do. So this, this literally causes Paul in the very next verses. What, is it, what does he say? For this reason, Ephesians 3.14, I fall on my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth receives its name. Here we're going again with the, with the particularity. God looks at people as families. He doesn't look at people as a big homogenous blob. There is particular people, and he has a particular love for particular people, including you. But it causes Paul to fall, and he says, I fall on my knees. I can't believe this is happening in my lifetime. And this is what he says. I pray that from the treasures of God's glory, he will empower you with inner strength. He's talking to Gentiles. So that the Messiah may live in your heart through your faith or trusting. And I pray that you would be rooted and founded in love so that you with who? All God's people. Who are God's people? Israel. It's right here. So that you with all God's people will be given strength to grasp the breadth, length, height, and depth of the Messiah's love. Yes, to know it even though it is beyond all knowing so that you will be filled with the fullness of God. <laughs> Paul is saying, hey, he says in Ephesians 2 that you Gentiles were once far off, outsiders, foreigners to the covenants, but now you've been brought near through the blood of Jesus. And so he's summarizing all this to say, you don't have all this covenantal history that the Jewish people have. And many of you, some, quite a few of you have gone through adoption and you know when you adopt a child, especially one at an older age, that you have to spend a lot of time integrating that child's identity into the culture of your family to help them feel truly like a son or a daughter. And Paul's saying, hey Gentiles, you don't have the covenantal history that the Jewish family has, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, God can put this inside of you so that through your faith in Jesus, you can receive this sonship into the family, this daughtership into the family. So you don't have to go do Jewish things in order to be rooted in your historical identity as being part of God's family because God's family is Jew and Gentile, united together through our common faith in Jesus, the King of Israel. So we're adopted into this family, but you know, I think one of the questions we stopped asking is why? Why did God bring the Gentiles in? I mean, we know he wants 
to be in relationship with every person. That's a given. That's number one. But I think the second reason has been missed. And your church, through the leadership of your pastor, understands this second reason. So I want to look at Romans 11 as we wind this down. Why did God, in Jesus, make salvation to the Gentiles? Paul says, I ask then, have they, the Jewish people, stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. Okay, he's writing this letter to the Roman church, which is a Gentile community. And for five years, the Jews have been kicked out of Rome during this period. Then they were allowed back. And the Gentile believers didn't want them to come back into their fellowships because in that five-year absence, they started to develop what I would say lies from the enemy about the covenantal faithfulness of God to his family, the Jewish people. So God, Paul is having to address this because as the Jews were being treated worse and worse by the Roman Empire, it was easy for the Gentiles to say, well, I guess God's done with y'all. You, re- you rejected Jesus. You're our enemy. God's done with you. He's, we're in. We're the new ones. We're the new family. But Paul is saying, no, they haven't stumbled so as to fall. Absolutely not. And then look at what this says. On the contrary, by their transgression, which was not receiving Jesus corporately, salvation has come to the Gentiles. We've been let in on this because they essentially said collectively, nah. So God said, okay, well, I'm going to go get by everybody. I want everybody to be in my family. But look what it says. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. See, this is a part that we miss. There is a responsibility on Gentile Christians in a family partnership to say, hey, I'm so thankful to be in this family, but I'm not going without them. And I got to live my life in a way, I have to express my faith in a way that makes them become jealous. How do you make someone jealous? You take possession of something that's theirs. Any of you who have kids know that this is true. Your child has a toy. It's been sitting on the shelf collecting dust for three years. And the moment that the younger sibling goes in and takes that toy and starts playing with it, everything loses its peace in the house, right? Like, ah, dad, she took my toy. What? It's my favorite toy. You haven't even played with it for three years. It doesn't matter. It's my favorite toy. She can't have it. This is like a daily occurrence in my house. It's a jealousy. How do we live our lives in a way that creates a longing for what we have as the adopted children, how do we create that in the original children's hearts? We have a biblical responsibility to relate to the Jewish family with love, 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 causing jealousy for the Lord in their hearts. In Romans 9, Paul actually says right before this that he'd be willing to lose his salvation. Give it up. He'd be willing to give up his own salvation if it meant salvation for his people the Jewish people. And it's like two chapters later, it's Paul saying, could you please help me reach my family? Gentiles, I just need some help. And I don't know if any of you have a family member who maybe isn't walking with the Lord or they're going through some hard thing. I have one right now. And my prayer constantly is, okay, they might not listen to me, but they're going to listen to the stranger that they feel some level of trust with. So God, send some stranger into their life to help them come into right relationship with you. 
This is what Paul's saying, you guys. Gentiles, please help me. Help us. Help us Jewish people who we want to reach our family. We need your help. You've got to help. You've got to pray for us. You've got to relate. You've got to reach out to people for us. We need you to play a part in this. It's a partnership. And then he says this in Romans eleven twenty five as we get down the verse. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob, which is another ter- word for Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul's reminding them, listen, the deliverer is coming from Zion. And he's coming to deal with his original family. And yes, with you as well. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.6, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. But our part to play in this as Christians, as Gentiles is, don't be ignorant and don't be conceited. That's what Paul said. Don't be ignorant and don't be conceited. The word conceited, is tr- it, the definition of it is having an excessively favorable opinion of one's abilities. Y'all, we cannot reach the world without the Jewish people. It was the mandate given to them when God gave it to Abraham. And if we think that we're going to see the return of Jesus without them. We're wrong. That's conceit. We are excessively favorable in our opinion of our own abilities. We need them, and they need us. We have to be in relationship and partnership with one another, and each one of us has a role to play in this. And so the last thing I want to ask you is, as we close, will you participate? And I don't even know if will you participate is the right way of saying this. It's, it's an invitation. God is always, he's an inviter. He doesn't enforce relationship. He's not showing up and saying, take me on a date. I want to go on a date. Spend some time with me. He's saying, hey, I would love to spend some time with you. Would you make time to spend time with me? And I feel like this is the invitation that God's making to the Gentile church. I'm one of them. Will you participate? Our future is destined to their future, whether we like it or not. Jesus isn't going to see Jerusalem again until they cry out and say, we welcome you. We're ready for you. And you know where he's going to return. He's returning to Jerusalem. He's saying, my feet aren't going to be here again until you welcome me. And we have a part to play in that. I love how uh, message, the message version writes Romans eleven eleven. The next question is, are they down for the count, the Jewish people? Are they out of this for good? And the, clear cut an- the answer is clear cut. No. Ironically, when they walked out, they left the door open and let the outsiders walk in. And the outsiders walked in. But the next thing you know, the Jews are starting to wonder if perhaps they walked out on a good thing. Now, if they're leaving, triggered this worldwide coming of non-Jewish outsiders to the kingdom, look at this. Just imagine the effect of their coming back. What a homecoming. What a homecoming. And so I just want to ask you this week, would you just make a tiny, tiny, tiny little commitment to just, whether it's one day, seven days, three days, you decide. But would you just spend just even five minutes and just ask God, how do you want me to participate in this? 
How can I play a part in going after your original children? Because what did God say in Genesis 12? I will bless those who bless you. When you raise your hand and you say, God, I'm in. I want to be a part of reaching your original family. If any of you have kids, you know the number one way for someone to touch your heart is to show kindness to your children. Right? If someone comes up to my son and tells him, man, amazing job at that game. You're amazing. I love that guy. I'm like, hey, what do you, what do you want from me? Hey, thanks, you know, if you give him a $5 bill. This is, the, this is the core of who we are. We want to touch the heart of the Father. And the amazing part about it is God already made a declaration. You want to touch my heart? I will bless you. So whether you want to sow into this financially and helping ministries like your church does, take the good news of Jesus to the Jewish people, or pray, we, it, all of it. We need all of it. There are so few churches in the world that understand this, and we're delaying our future by putting it off. So I just want to end by praying. And just I'd ask you to just open your heart and ask the Lord how to lead you in this. And the last thing is, maybe we've gone through all of this and you find yourself here, regardless of all this stuff about the Jewish people, but it would be terrible to miss this opportunity. You're here and, and, and you know, you're kind of in this part. You might need some prayer for someone to come and walk alongside you to hear the voice of the person guiding you. You might need some help on the journey. It's like, man, this load's heavy. Can someone help me carry this? God has a particular plan for your life. You're the only you that he has. And so I just encourage you as we close, don't leave without being prayed for. If you're on this journey and there's something hard happening, let God meet you with the help of other people. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for Pillar Church, thankful for all the people that are here. I pray that you would lead us and guide us on how we can participate in playing a part in Israel's story and playing a part in reaching your original children. We thank you for bringing us into this family, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for adopting us in. And we want to do what's in your heart, which is to reach all people, but we want to reach your family. We want to make it a priority. So I just pray you'd guide every person this week. Show them as they pray. Lord, show them how to participate in this story. And then if there's anyone here, Lord, who needs to know what it's like on a deeper level to be a part of your family, I pray, God, you give them the courage to come and get ministry from other people who can walk with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank y'all.